Corinthians chapter 7, starting from verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ashley. When was the last time you cried? For me, it was 10 days ago. Um, my daughter, our daughter was finishing primary school and um, the school had put on a Thanksgiving service. And at the beginning of the service, they had a slideshow going around of photographs of the children who were leaving that year. And the second photograph up was of my daughter, aged five, whenever she began the school. And I must admit, at that moment, I shed a few tears as um, kind of contemplated her leaving school. And a big moment for her, a big moment for us as a family. But it'll be different for you. Maybe the last time you cried, it was tears of joy. You were happy, you were relieved. Maybe you had been laughing so much that you cried laughing, laughing. Or maybe they were tears of sorrow. You cried because of pain, pain in your body or in your mind. You're hurting or stressed. 
Or maybe someone you love is experiencing the pain and that makes you cry. Or maybe there were tears of sorrow. Life's changing. Life's changing again. And you find that hard. Or at a loss that this week was an anniversary of someone's death. When did you last cry? Let me ask you a slightly different question. When did you last cry over your sin? What do I mean by that? Well, life falls apart. We mess up. We fail. And we feel sadness and sorrow over the wrong that we've done. Perhaps we've let people down because of our selfishness or we've been fickle or lazy. Or perhaps it's a moral feeling you've stolen from your company or you've acted improperly with a colleague or you've cheated and you're covering it up. Or you didn't get that thing right. Maybe that conversation didn't go as you had planned or actually the conversation didn't go at all. And when we remember what we've done, or when we're confronted with it, we feel awful and wretched and we're afraid of being found out or it just niggles away at us. We've got a guilty conscience. We feel dirty inside. We might feel different sorrows when we feel, but our passage tonight says that they boil down to two Verse 10, there is godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. And they're both painful. And yet Paul, the writer of these verses, is delighted because the Corinthians, the people who he's writing to, have experienced godly sorrow. If you're here tonight and perhaps you're a visitor with us and you don't know the kind of what's going on in this passage... Well, the background is that Paul has had a difficult relationship with this church, and so he paid them a painful visit, and then he wrote them a letter delivered by Titus that caused them, verse 8, sorrow and hurt. And yet, he wasn't out to get them. He's not a sadist. He didn't take pleasure in their pain. Instead, he was delighted in what their pain produced. Because godly sorrow is productive, but worldly sorrow is destructive. And their godly sorrow brought joy to Paul and eventually to the Corinthians themselves. And if we recognize it, and we experience it in our lives, yes, it's painful, but it can bring us real joy and bring real change as well. So how do we know that the sorrow we experience because of our sin is the sorrow that God intends and not a worldly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow is productive because, first of all, it brings repentance. Verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. 
the Corinthians had done wrong. And when Paul's letter arrived, it convicted them of their sin. They were guilty, and they felt guilty. And they, knew, they, they had known God's way to live, and they hadn't lived that way. And they could have dismissed how they felt as just an unhealthy way to approach life, or attacked Paul for feel, making them feel miserable, or got all defensive and stroppy, but they didn't. So imagine you wake up in the morning, and you feel awful. You, you're in pain. You know something's wrong with you. Your body is telling you that. But you need to work out what. Is it my head that hurts? Is it my stomach? Is it all over? And once you work out what's wrong with you, where it hurts, then you can work out what to do about it. And that's what's going on here. The sorrow God intends is sorrow over sin. It's recognizing that we have sinned against God in thought or word or deed. And so we're guilty before him that we've wandered from his path. We haven't honored him. We've fallen short of his standards. Worldly sorrow is being sorry over ourselves. Like often we feel, and we feel ashamed. We're full of self-pity. I've let myself down. We've let other people down. We haven't been who we should be. I haven't been true to myself. Now that may be true, but godly sorrow isn't that. It's much deeper than that. It recognizes that this is God's world, and he calls us to relate to him as he wants us to relate to him, but that we have sinned against him. Godly sorrow is being sorry over our sin. Worldly sorrow is being sorry because we've been caught. And now we feel exposed and embarrassed and ashamed. But if we hadn't been caught, we'd have felt okay. Or worldly sorrow is being sorry about the consequences of what we've done, but not the wrong itself. You know that classic line, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. We're sorry that we've got to pay that money back for the damage that we've made. Or the friendship isn't the same again, or our health has suffered. Godly sorrow is being sorry over our sin against God. But once we acknowledge that, then godly sorrow brings repentance. And repentance is a 180 degree change of direction. Imagine you're in my car with me and I'm driving and as we go along the road we come to a junction and the sat-nav says to us um, you need to turn left but I don't take that turn to the left I turn right and I keep driving up the road and eventually I you know reach the point where okay I admit okay yes I have gone the wrong way. Um, Repentance isn't me saying to you, turning to you in the passenger seat and saying, listen, I'm sorry for doing that, but I just keep driving on anyway. No. Repentance is admitting that I'm wrong. It's stopping the car and it's doing a 180 degree turn and coming back the other way, coming the right way. It's saying that what I've spoken or done or thought, 
I've done against God, that I'm walking away from him, and so I turn around and I walk towards him. But repentance is more than that. Like, imagine you open the fridge, and you think to yourself, I wonder what's in that container. And you open it, and it stinks. Inside is something rotten. You're not quite sure. You think it might be some cheese, or a piece of fruit, or, you know, it's a milk that's gone off. And it looks awful, and it smells awful. And what do you do? What I hope you don't do is just put the lid on and put it back in again for someone else to find out. But what do we do? We take it out and we throw it away. Our sin stinks. It's rotten. It's disgusting. It's putrid. And sometimes we ignore the smell. And often we don't smell it because, sadly, our lives are used to it, so it doesn't bother us. But repentance is catching that smell and confessing how awful our sin is before God and turning from it and turning back to God of repenting before him of what we've done. Godly sorrow is productive, not destructive. And if we're honest, repentance doesn't come easy to us. You know, so often when we're in crisis, we say a quick, superficial, sorry to God and hope that he'll help us anyway. Or we promise him that we'll do this or that in order to make up for what we've done. But that's more like worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow is sorrow over our sin and brings repentance. And so, secondly, godly sorrow leads to salvation. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance leads to salvation because it leads us back to God. Yes, we may have sinned against other people. The Corinthians had certainly done that. But ultimately, all sin is against God. And so we need his forgiveness. And wonderfully, he can and will forgive us all our sins. In the grounds of Blenheim Palace, that big stately home just outside of Oxford up in Woodstock, there's a maze, and it's two miles long, and it's made up of hundreds of yew trees. And the advertising says, the maze can provide hours of fun depending on how long it takes you to find your way out. Because, you know, if you've been in a maze, you'll know how it works, that often you think you've found the way out, and then you turn the corner, and there's a dead end. And so you turn round again and you go another way and you turn the corner and it's another dead end. And our guilt and our feelings make us sad. But if we just ignore them, it's like a dead end. Or if we try to heal ourselves, you know, I think I, all I need to do is accept myself or I just need to forgive myself. It's a dead end. Or if I can get rid of that sadness, perhaps with medicine or counseling or exercise. Like those may have value, they may have their place, but ultimately they're a dead end. 
That's why worldly sorrow leads to death, because our sin and guilt remains. We're stuck in the dead end. But there is a path through the maze that will bring you out to the other side, and you have to work it out. But you don't have to with your guilt, because repentance leads to salvation, because it leads us to Jesus Christ, and he is our Savior. On the cross, he took on himself all our sin and guilt. He bore God's punishment for all that we had done wrong. As Paul wrote back in chapter 5, verse 21, just on the next page, other page, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He paid the price, so your debt is paid. His blood washes you so that your dirt is removed. This is the good news of Christianity. Can God forgive me for that sin? Yes, he can and will. Can God forgive me for that sin again? Yes, he can and will. Verse 8. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Why did Paul write only a little while? Because the Corinthians responded with godly sorrow, and so God forgave them, and their sin and guilt were gone. And we need to hear this good news. Here in this church, repentance is the entrance into the Christian life, and it's the path that we walk as Christians. Day by day, week by week, we repent of our sins, and we receive God's forgiveness and grace. And it's good news for our society too, You know, many of us are familiar with cancel culture, that if you say and do the wrong thing, according to some in our culture, especially on social media, you'll be attacked and ostracized or silenced. And even if it was some time ago, the internet never forgets, and it will come back to haunt you. And secular writers have asked, how are we able to forgive? How are we able to let go? And one writer has put it like this, In a world without God, we still have the Christian concepts of guilt and sin and shame, but no way out from them. There is no option of redemption as there is with Christianity. And the Apostle Paul says, worldly sorrow is destructive, but there's a church, a community, that's full of sorrow, but it's productive. Here you can find life, not death, forgiveness, and freedom, and joy. Verse 9, yet now I am happy, says Paul. I rejoice, he says. My joy was greater than ever. Verse 7, joy, joy, joy. Back in May 2019, the African-American businessman and tech investor Robert F. Smith spoke at the graduation um, ceremony 
for the class of Morehouse College in Atlanta in the USA. And at the end of his speech, he calmly made this announcement. I'm not going to try and do his accent. He says, on behalf of the eight generations of my family that have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. This is my class, 2019, and my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. You can watch it all on YouTube. It's there. But if you watch the crowd, there are these gasps of disbelief and then the whole student body erupts in all of these cheers because he had just paid the entire student loan debt of the 396 graduating students, an amount in the region of $58 million. Imagine that had been you and your debt. I think some of us would have done more than smile. But what God does is of a different order to Morehouse College. His forgiveness can bring joy to all of us as individuals and as a church. That there is joy in seeing our pain and suffering lead us into a deeper experience of God and of his grace. And then there's God's joy as well. Because Jesus tells us how there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Well, if there's a party over one, what must it have been like when the whole Corinthian church repented? God intends for our sin and guilt to make us sad so that our godly sorrow will lead to salvation and the joy that it brings. And then finally, thirdly, godly sorrow produces change. Look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Paul mentions seven different changes in their attitude to him, and the Corinthians can now see for themselves how devoted they are to him. Now, worldly sorrow can produce change too, But it's superficial, it's not deep, because it's not driven by the gospel. It doesn't change our hearts, and so has a limited impact on our lives. But godly sorrow produces change to our hearts and emotions and actions. So what difference will repenting of your sin and receiving God's forgiveness make in your life? How might it change how you engage with social media? How might it affect your bank account? Or your attitude to the people in your small group? Or the energy and time that you put into restoring that friendship? Or how and what you pray for? It will mean different things for different people. But be practical. What might it look like for you? What might it look like for us as a church? How, could, how might we show to others the changes God is making within our community? How might we show to others the joy and the sorrow of the gospel? Godly sorrow is productive, not destructive. 
So tonight, how might you respond to hearing God's word from this passage? Maybe you're here, and to be honest, you've experienced little of this godly sorrow. Perhaps you're comfortable with your sin. It's not a big deal to you, and you don't think it's a big deal to God. Well, God's word through Paul convicted the Corinthians and showed them what they needed to confess and to change. It was a matter of spiritual life and death. And you too can pray to God that through his word and his spirit, he might convict you to help you see where you are feeling him so you experience godly sorrow and real joy. But maybe you're here and you know your sins and failures. The Lord has been convicting you. You have a guilty conscience. You feel sorrow as God intends. Well, if that's you, let your sorrow bring you to repentance, to turn back to God, to receive his forgiveness through Jesus, your Savior. His mercy is more than your sin. His power can produce real change in your life. And maybe you're here, and maybe that sorrow, that godly sorrow, may be the result of someone speaking to you. How will you respond? Will you be all defensive? Like, who do they think they are? How about taking the plank out of your eye before you deal with me? You know, what do you know about me? It'll hurt. But maybe there is truth, some truth in what they say. Maybe they really care about you and love you and so have spoken to you. It would be worth pondering and praying and talking over. Maybe this could be an opportunity for godly sorrow. When those tears of hurt become tears of sorrow at our sin... So don't miss that opportunity. Because godly sorrow is productive, not destructive. It brings repentance and leads to salvation and produces change. And it brought real delight to Paul, and it delights God, and it can delight us too. Let's take a moment to reflect God's word to us. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity love, and power. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing us with a Savior who stands ready to forgive us. So I pray, Lord, that in our lives individually and as a, our life as a church, please, Lord, convict us of our sin. Bring us to repentance, turning not from you but to you, that we may receive your forgiveness freedom, the joy that comes from knowing that we have been washed clean, our debt has been paid, 
please change us from the inside out. May our church life be marked by this joy and sorrow, sorrow as you intend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.